Hey, everyone in the world. Laszlo Montgomery here. Admit it, way sooner than you thought I'd be. Part three of the Tong Wars of New York Chinatown. My primary source for this topic has been what I'm sure will be considered the definitive source of these times, Tong Wars, the untold story of vice, money, and murder in New York Chinatown. Scott Seligman is the author. The book came out last month from Viking Press. Last episode sort of petered out right after the end of the second of four Tong Wars that went down in New York's Chinatown. That one in particular fought between the Onleong Tong and the Four Brothers Society. Peace had been made between the Four Brothers and the Onleongs at last. As the year 1910 came to a close, William Howard Taft is El Presidente, H.H. Asquith over in the U.K. We have a special relationship with them. Over in the beautiful country, the first salvo on the war on drugs that still drags on to this very day began with the Opium Exclusion Act of February 9, 1909. No opium allowed for importation. Only opium smokers were effective. That's who was targeted. The rich and famous who took their opium in tinctures of laudanum could still get high legally. Only opium smokers were affected by this new law. Well, guess who the opium smokers were? Yeah, once again, the Chinese were targeted. Do-gooders in American society, mostly missionaries and crusaders who fought against booze and tobacco, also lent their support against opium. Everyone knew it was mostly the Chinese who smoked opium. That was the reputation, at least. So Chinese got caught in their crosshairs. But as far as the U.S. government saw it, it was a wise foreign policy decision to show the Chinese government they were also against the proliferation of opium. Those of you good-looking listeners of mine based in Shanghai or who have been there might recall that plaque that hangs outside the Swatch Art Peace Hotel, inscribed, Wan Guo Jin Yan Hui Hui Zhi. It says, this was the place where the International Opium Commission held its meeting in February 1909. The USG was trying to make nice with China and show them they, like the Chinese, wanted to put an end to the opium trade and stamp out opium smoking. Those of you who listen to the CHP episodes on the history of opium, the Opium War, and the Qing Dynasty no doubt recall how much damage the opium trade did to the people of China. It ravaged parts of society, and really, it wasn't until the communists took over in 1949 that, with a heavy hand and the barrel of a gun, the opium biz was finally done away with. So the U.S. Congress also passed a law, and now in 1909, opium wasn't as easy to get as it once was. Coca-Cola had stopped adding 9 milligrams of cocaine per 7-ounce serving to their secret formula six years earlier. Well, there's nothing like prohibition to give crime a nice big fat injection of opportunity. The Opium Exclusion Act led to a spike in opium prices and took control of the import and distribution from the hands of U.S. Customs into the hands of criminal organizations. This initially caused one hell of a crisis, especially for addicts. But you know the old story. The word crisis in Chinese, wei ji, wei means danger, and qi means opportunity. That's how the third Tong War began. Opium destined for commercial use had been imported into the United States since the 19th century. Now that that was illegal, it had to be smuggled in and distributed surreptitiously. This meant higher operating costs and more payoffs involved. 
January 25, 1911, the feds in New York raided two opium dens located on 7th Avenue. They seized a nice haul of opium and a ton of documents. Among these documents were a cache of ledgers meticulously written out that revealed massive payoffs going on between the Chinese purveyors of the drug and the local police and customs officials. It was like Al Capone's ledgers. The whole secretive system was revealed in black and white, and all roads led to Charlie Boston, Tom Lee's right-hand man and the kingpin of the Onliangs. Charlie Boston, known in the old country as Lee Guanchang, in Mandarin at least, he knew the jig was up. He tried to lay low and evade capture, but in 1911 it still wasn't so easy for Chinese to blend in and get lost in the crowd. He got nabbed and thrown in a cell in the tombs. And on February 20th, 1911, he was formally charged with the federal crime of conspiracy to smuggle opium. He'll get 18 months in the slammer, serving his time at a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. The Anliangs were not only supplying and operating the opium dens of Chinatown, it was learned they were also importing the drug and had set up a nationwide distribution system. The feds had some Chinatown insiders helping them by ratting out the location of the opium dens and pointing out who was doing what. And these insiders were none other than the sworn enemies of the Anliangs, the Hip Singhs. The Hip Singhs weren't just being nice guys. Their plan was to rat on the Onleongs and jump in to fill the vacuum in the opium supply chain. So this worked out nicely for them. At the end of 1911, with Charlie Boston doing hard time and law enforcement once again making things tough for the Onleongs, they knew, according to the rule book, there was only one thing that had to be done, and that was to get even with the Hip Singhs for causing all this. Now, while all this is playing in the background, the Qing dynasty fell, and China was in sort of a chaotic state. Stories of the suffering going on in the home country did much to bring out the patriot in each and every Tong leader and member. What we'll see from here on out are attempts by the Onleongs, Hip Singhs, and Four Brothers to raise money to help out the budding Republic of China. From past episodes of the CHP, you recall those years immediately following the Xinhai Revolution that brought an end to the Qing were hardly peaceful and orderly. The peace was broken on January 5th, 1912. Four Onleong hitmen walked down Hip Sing Boulevard, a.k.a. Pell Street, to number 21, where the first Chinese Baptist church is today. They walked quietly upstairs to a gambling den run by the Hip Sings and started firing away. Killed in the ambush were the Hip Sings number one and two leaders. Mock Duck just happened to be present at the time, but he didn't get hit. The shooters all skedaddled and disappeared into the night. The president of the Hip Sings, Chong Bon Sing, lived long enough to identify his killers. Then he died. It seemed that the high binders and boo hao doys from out of town always seemed to get nabbed by the cops. They never seemed to get away. When the dust settled, it was learned these hits were in retaliation for sending Charlie Boston to the big house for the murder of Ong Leong's in Cleveland and Boston. The police followed this one up with one of the biggest raids ever staged in New York Chinatown history. On January 9th of 1911, 
221 warrants were issued and 80 cops raided joints on Mott, Pell, and Doyers, where 75 arrests were made. But this hardly prevented the third Tong War that proved to be the most blood-soaked to date. Tom Lee had to barricade himself in his building at 18 Mott Street after his nephew was gunned down by a hip sing right out in front. They had made Tom Lee a marked man after their number one and two were taken out. The guns were really out now as both sides went straight to the mattresses. Some thought that when Mock Duck finally got convicted of running an illegal gambling house and was sent away, that the killing would stop. Well, that didn't happen. Somehow, the slippery Mock Duck had always managed to get off lightly for all the homicides and other charges. But not this time. This time he was looking at a long stretch in the house of detention. When Yi Toy, a longtime enforcer and hip-sing top guy, and if they had a standing committee, he was in it. When he got popped, it really threw napalm on the bonfire. And as it turned out, the guys who whacked Yi Toy weren't even On Leongs. They were from some other gang. The On Leongs were the ones who had placed a bounty on Yi Toy, so it's as if they pulled the trigger. Yi Toy was there for some big hits over the years and had even participated in the Chinese theater massacre. You know, the hip sings didn't like losing this guy. Well, not long afterwards, in June of 1912, the hip sings tried to blow up the whole dang building where the Onleong headquarters was housed. No one was killed miraculously, but that ratcheted up things another notch. And when the hip sings tried to blow up 11 Mott Street, Onleong turf, the attempt failed, but this whole bombings thing took the war to a whole new level of sensationalism. Furthermore, now they were dragging the FDNY into the fray. So back and forth it went. The killings were sudden, and when someone got hit, everyone knew retaliation was right around the corner. Things were on edge in Chinatown like never before, and the newspapers were having a field day, blowing extra air into every article. And Chinese Americans across the USA walked around their daily lives knowing this whole thing didn't reflect well on them, as if the whole injustice of Chinese exclusion laws wasn't enough already. By mid-1912, the New York Herald was calling this, quote, the most spectacular and disastrous battle in the history of Chinatown, end quote. Chinese Americans cringed whenever they read a headline like that. The killing went on, and some of these gunfights were right out in the open like it was the Wild West. Innocent bystanders would get hurt. One time, two horses got shot. Any major dude could tell you there was some bad juju in New York Chinatown, worse than had ever been seen before. Well, like the other two previous Tong Wars, this one wasn't any less costly, and when things began to hurt where it counts in the income statement, both sides looked for ways to bring this bloody madness to a conclusion. The only way to do that was to very quietly bring in an outside party to moderate. That always seemed to work in the past. The hip sings couldn't themselves call for a truce because that was tantamount to surrendering to the On Leongs. Sometimes like this, both sides would pay private visits to the Chinese consul and the trusty old Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association and beseech them to step in and negotiate a peace. Let me just mention something funny. Uh, the last day of February 1913, Mock Duck got sent away to Sing Sing to go serve his time. He had just gotten married before he was incarcerated. 
Remember Gin Gum from the other two episodes? He was a long-time On Leong member, and for all intents and purposes, another of Tom Lee's right-hand men in the whole organization. Well, this lady that Mock Duck had married, Gin Gum ended up marrying her widowed mother in a ceremony held in Toledo, Ohio. And once they were pronounced man and wife, that made Gin Gum and On Leong Mock Duck's stepfather-in-law. That was quite unprecedented in the annals of the Tong Wars. In May 1913, the Chinese consul was getting nowhere, trying to get the two sides to back down. Well, actually, there were three sides. There was, there was also a third Tong that had thrown their hat in the ring. These were called the Gimlan Association. They were made up of a lot of former hip sings and hongmen. Everyone was holding out for the best deal for themselves. Once the Chinese consul threw in the towel for this thankless task, he went to the district attorney and asked him if he could step in and mediate. And that seemed to work. And so, on May 21st, 1913, the Third Tong War came to an end. All three Tongs signed and chopped a document that was displayed prominently for all to see. A week later, it was made official in front of a judge. Let me quote Scott Seligman. Quote, The treaty was signed on May 28th in Judge Foster's chambers, ostensibly put an end to the Third Tong War. Gene Gum, who came with four colleagues, signed for his society. Tom Lee never showed up for such events, although he was always the ultimate authority in the Tong. He had not held the office of president for some time. Five hip sings, led by the national president, Feng Fu Liang, a 36-year-old China-born physician, represented their organization. And three officers of the Gim Lans were present as well. All wore Western clothing, and only two or three signed in Chinese. Times had changed since the fall of the dynasty, and these were strong indications that the men had begun to see themselves not as Chinese as much as Chinese-Americans. End quote. Everyone had made nice, and the treaty extended to all the chapters of the Tongs nationwide. And as you can imagine, everyone breathed a collective sigh of relief from this May truce. And in time, with the closure of all the opium dens, everything settled down into a routine, and the inveterate gamblers, of which there was never a shortage, came back. Revenue once again began to flow into Chinatown. And as soon as the gambling business was running at full throttle, along came the occasional government official who was always determined to be the one who would clean up Chinatown where others had always failed. Very serious and aggressive attempts were made to stamp it out in 1913-1914. But after all these years, the Chinese who ran gambling dens had figured out all the tricks of the authorities, and it was always a game of whack-a-mole with places being closed down on Friday, reopening up somewhere else uh, on the following Tuesday. It's like any vice. There's a ready market. Some enterprising soul will always figure out a way to supply it. With the revolving door of government and law enforcement officials trying to keep up a full-court press on the gambling industry, some owners decided to just... Chuck it all in and get out of Chinatown. Word got out that just across the Hudson River was the new promised land, and Newark, New Jersey began to emerge as the place to go to for Paikau, Fantan, and other games of chance. And once the gambling joints started leaving, the prostitution and drugs followed. They got to the point in mid-1915 that so many Chinese had vacated Chinatown that 
Soon you began to see Jewish and Italian immigrants leasing space in the buildings on Mott and Pell. The New York Sun described the phenomenon this way, quote, Chinatown is being renovated, disinfected, civilized, Christianized, and consequently evacuated, and chop suey is giving way to spaghetti and gefilte fish, end quote. Hmm, <laughs> better not say something like that today. 1914, 1915 were especially difficult for the average Chinese American making an honest living in and around Chinatown. The strong arm efforts of law enforcement agencies to intimidate and browbeat the tongs into giving up and moving elsewhere had hurt everyone. The prevailing attitude was that doing what they were doing was the one and only way to get rid of vice in Chinatown. And if the good had to suffer for the sake of getting rid of the bad, then so be it. And if a Chinese-American citizen sought relief in the courts, well, if the other side was white, that was the winning color every time. In mid-1915, one of the paragons of the New York Chinatown community, Gin Gum, passed away. Remember, he was also Mock Duck's stepfather-in-law. He was felled by a heart attack, and considering his stature, he had quite the send-off. The scale of Gin Gum's funeral was something that hadn't been seen in Chinatown for years a 128-carriage cortege took Gingum to his final resting place in Cypress Hill Cemetery, today a 20-minute drive from JFK Airport. Tom Lee followed his right-hand man a few years later, passing away on January 10, 1918. Tom Lee had ruled the Onleong Tong in all its forms for 40 years, and if anyone thought Gingum got a big send-off, the one for Tom Lee was the biggest one Chinatown had ever seen. All the politicians, those in law enforcement and Tammany Hall, showed up in force to pay their respects. Prominent Chinese from across the United States also showed up for the funeral ceremonies. Tom Lee joined his former right hand, Gin Gum, at Cypress Hills. And with the passing of those two, it really was the end of an era. The papers had written, quote, now that the last columns have been written of his gorgeous Chinese funeral, two generations of reporters who covered Chinatown affairs are recalling the calm counsel that old Tom Lee always had to offer on every conceivable twist and turn of life. If this Chinese patriarch had been born an American, everyone who really knew him believes he would have filled the real mayor's chair much better than many men who do not wear cues." End quote. Well, it was indeed the end of an era, and the times were obviously changing before everyone's eyes. By 1920, 30% of all Chinese between Boston and L.A. were born in the United States. Many had served in World War I, among them 38 Onleongs. When these heroes arrived home, they were given a resounding Chinatown welcome. The Onleongs had moved their headquarters to a new location at 41 Mott Street, where the Golden Feng Wong Bakery is today. Peace had at last come to Chinatown, and by the looks of it, it was here to stay. The peace sign between the tongs didn't end the killing, however. Once in a while, someone would get bumped off, and, and everyone scrambled to discover whether someone had broken the peace, or if this was a private matter or some kind of revenge killing between two men rather than two tongs. When the Hip Sing national president got shot in Chinatown, it raised the temperature there a few hundred degrees Kelvin. But the killers were neither On Leong nor any other Tong. 
And the funeral, which gave Tom Lee sending off a run for its money, was attended by the Onleong top brass, who went out of their way to pay maximum respect and send signals that it wasn't them who broke the peace and never will be. The hip sings and Onleongs even went so far as to sign a joint declaration for all to see that said this incident had not been between the tongs and that peace had been maintained. This kind of behavior in the olden days was unthinkable. Well, after three Tong Wars, everyone had pretty much figured out there were never any winners. Just when everyone thought it was safe to go in the water, however, a fourth Tong War erupted. And if anyone thought the third Tong War was bloody, this one was the granddaddy of them all. The star of the fourth Tong War was a man named Chin Jack Lem. The May Truce of 1913 had managed to last until 1924. But then along came Chin Jack Lem, a Chicago on Leong recognized nationally as a mover and shaker in the organization. He went and defected to the Hip Sings. It's slightly more complicated than that. Chin Jack Lem and 13 other on Leongs got caught up in a scandal where they were caught skimming from the organization. At the Onleong Annual Convention held in Pittsburgh, future home of the Stillers, on April 1924, they got booted out. So Chin Jack Lem went straight to the hip sings and handed in an application, so to speak. And as an inducement, he said he'd be able to arrange a full-scale defection of the Onleong, Pittsburgh, and Cleveland chapters to the hip sing banner. All this was done on the QT, but you know how it is. Paper can't wrap a fire. Word leaked out and all hell broke loose. Chin Jack Lam was not an ordinary Tong boss. He held all the keys to the kingdom with the secrets he had learned over two decades. The Hipsing elders pondered what to do because accepting Chin Jack Lam into the Tong was the same as a declaration of war. They were really the bad guys in this fourth Tong War. The Chinese Consolidated Benevolence Association tried to find a middle ground that might avert a war, but in the end, the hip sings told the CCBA to get out of here. Hostilities formally broke out on October 8, 1924, with the murder of an Onleong enjoying a nice dinner at a restaurant on Delancey Street. Three days later, a hip sing was killed in retaliation somewhere in Brooklyn. Then in Dayton and Chicago, violence erupted between the tongs. Soon in Newark, Pittsburgh, Boston, and Schenectady, New York, of all places, the tongs there were up in arms. Before long, the wise guys in Philly, the Motor City, and Brewtown, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, joined the fray as well. Even without the Internet, word was able to travel quite fast during the Roaring Twenties. Chin Jack Lamb got himself arrested in Chicago for carrying a loaded automatic weapon. Somehow he managed to get released on bail and quickly disappeared. October 1924 was a bloody year for the tongs. The bullets and meat cleavers were flying like no one had ever seen before. Now, back in the olden days, all the authorities had to do was come out in full force against the gambling, drugs, and prostitution. Once business came to a standstill, everyone always tried to make nice. But this fourth Tong War had nothing to do with the big three vices. So law enforcement was scratching its head trying to figure out a way. Cooler heads on the Hip Sing and On Leong sides were able to 
hammer out a temporary agreement in November 1924. And Chinjack Lamb's luck ran out when he got nabbed after being on the lam since he uh, finagled a deal to get bailed out on that weapons charge. So now he was in custody. But he had one hell of a legal team, I'll say that for him. He was wanted in two states, and the authorities were just clamoring for him. And he got bailed out, then jumped bail, and the whole thing would repeat itself. But Chinjack Lamb did finally meet his destiny in a state prison in Columbus, Ohio. And if anyone thought this was going to end the war, <laughs> they were mistaken. The hip sayings had raised the stakes in this war. Now they were bringing in soldiers from Hong Kong who were paid 200 bucks apiece to fight in this war. They needed the extra muscle power. So they'd smuggle these guys in, pack them into a space like they were a bunch of sardines, just give them enough to keep them from dying. Then when they hit the beautiful country, hip sings on this side would unpack them from the crates, bring them back from the dead, and hand them a gun, and off they went. They did a lot of the dirty work in the Fourth Tong War. The going rate back then, well, depended where you were. Denver maybe didn't command the same rates as New York. But a good soldier can make 50 bucks shooting up somebody's business and a 1,000 clams if you knock someone off, 350 if you wounded your target. And by now, the assassin's choice had graduated to sawed-off shotguns, so you can't imagine what a mess that made. Yeah, this was the worst of the Tong Wars, and people are the same wherever they are, and that went for killers, too. Not surprisingly, the truce didn't hold, and the back-and-forth killing continued on as the Roaring Twenties unfolded. 1924-1925 saw the worst of the killing. Chicago and New York were center stage. Those years, Al Capone was just getting started. By 1925, 41 bodies had been counted, victims of the latest Tong War. All the stalwarts, the Chinese Consul, Chinese Consolidated Benevolence Association, they were all consulted, and they tried their best to bring an end to the madness. And finally, March 26, 1925, a deal was reached between the heads of the Anliang and Hip Singh. And that lasted for five months. August 1925, and Om Leong and Hip Singh went at it after one accused the other of, you know, having a thang for his wife. There was gunfire, but no one was killed. But stuff like this just turned up the heat and tested the delicate peace. Then in New York, some Om Leong was shot and killed in his own chop suey joint. And before you knew it, similar things were happening at all the usual suspects, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Baltimore, Minneapolis. Back and forth, these two tongs went at each other. So on it went, and with the state of affairs the way it was, it wasn't what you'd call a uh, golden time for civil rights for Chinese Americans. Law enforcement would come down hard wherever the tongs operated, usually Chinatowns across the nation, and they'd be taken all the law-abiding, not-looking-for-any-trouble types and threw them into the same pot as the Tong members. Remember, in those Chinese exclusion days, if you counted the Yellow Emperor as one of your ancestors, you had to carry papers with you at all times to prove you were legit and duly registered with the authorities. Well, not everyone was legal. There were plenty who had been living in the shadows for years. Now these poor dolphins got caught in the same tuna net. They'd be thrown in the big house and then promptly deported. And that spelled an end to their uh, American dream. This hatred 
ran pretty deep. And because everyone was connected through a network of relationships, blood oaths, and a sense of brotherhood and common cause, what happened in one place had an impact elsewhere. New York City officials worked together with the feds to work out a deal, or at least make serious enough threats to make both sides reconsider. Federal and city law enforcement leaned on the tongs like never before, threatening everyone with immediate deportation as soon as their prison sentences were up. And because desperate times required desperate measures, even the Tong leaders were dragged in and themselves threatened with complicity in any crimes committed by either Tong. Well, it wasn't exactly legal, and try as they did, the law wasn't on their side, and Tong lawyers always beat that rap. As the ordinary good people of Compton once saw themselves defined by the violence carried out by the Crips and Bloods, the same thing happened to the Chinese living in America. The ill repute of the Tongs was rubbing off on all the innocent bystanders. In exasperation, the U.S. attorney pointed a finger at the Tong leaders and exclaimed, quote, Every Chinaman we mark for deportation will go back to the Orient, and all the funds and power you have, all the lawyers and pull you may think you have, will not stop us, end quote. Any Chinese who through laziness or defiance, failed to register after the 1902 Scott Act, suddenly found themselves getting caught up in the mass deportations. So now, with La Migra leading the charge, believe it or not, that basically did the trick. With all these threats to trample on the civil rights of Chinese Americans and keeping the feet of the Tong bosses to the fire, exploratory talks began that tried to put an end to this madness. By September 1925, substantive discussion began to make headway. They zeroed in on the matter that started the whole thing, defections from one tong to another. One thing about the U.S. federal government, they didn't play by the same rules as local authorities. As more and more tong members fell into the awesome and unpredictable maw of the U.S. justice system, it instilled a new kind of fear and dread. A full court press, the feds maintained throughout 1925. It was like the final minutes of Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Weapons of war were always being confiscated. Chinese were dragged downtown and interrogated and arrested by the hundreds. There weren't enough interrogation rooms to carry out the work. U.S. attorneys sometimes found themselves carrying out this job right on the sidewalks of Chinatown. Scott Seligman again, quote, Although there was no outright resistance, there was an unmistakable air of hostility on the part of the Chinese. Federal agents also faced protests by several angry white women whose husbands were among the detainees. Some were able to prove the men were legal, or at least they were their lawful spouses. Several Chinese men secured release this way. Objections also came from the owners of Chinese restaurants and laundries and importers who saw a huge threat to their businesses in the possible wholesale loss of their workforce, end quote. <laughs> the more things changed, the more they remained the same. The New York Post quoted one of the feds who said that these raids would continue, quote, until every undesirable Chinese in the city is in custody and started back to China, end quote. Yeah, they made good on their threats, too. Finally, and for the last time, the Chinese consul and the good old dependable ref in all these cases, the Chinese Consolidated Benevolence Association, the Zhongguo Huiquan, they got called in again in their steady hand and particular ways to appeal to their fellow Chinese. This time, 
brought everything to an end. September 21, 1925, everyone gathered at no less a landmark than the Waldorf Astoria itself to celebrate this, quote, eternal peace pact between the tongs. They really meant it this time. Right there before the assembled crowd, Mr. Lee Gim Min for the On Leongs and Mr. Wong Get, one of the originals, still alive and kicking, representing the hip sings, shook hands and buried the meat claver. Everyone present at the formal banquet held on October 14, 1925, had reason for hope. It was a festive occasion, and on the surface, you'd think it was over. The war was over, but there was no love lost between these two tongs. They made a stop killing each other, but they still explored innovating ways to cause each other whatever inconvenience or revenue disruption they could. Anyone who read a Chinese newspaper, on the other hand, knew these two sides were never going to join hands and sing kumbaya. Well, everything was quiet for a while, but on March 24, 1927, word got out that two hip sings in Brooklyn got popped by an on leong. After two years of itchy fingers on their triggers, there followed a sudden spate of intertong killings in other cities as well. So they pulled out the well-worn script, and as everyone started sharpening their knives, the USG stepped in and, you know, in so many words said, yeah, if you guys don't knock it off, we're going to send you all back to China. Scott Seligman quotes Frank Moy, head of the Chicago branch of the On Leongs, who said back then, quote, the On Leongs are the wealthy organization. The hip sings are made up largely of small merchants, laundrymen, and waiters, at whose head are a group of men little removed from blackmailers. Although the On Leongs are numerically stronger because of their holdings and business interests, they will not go to the lengths the hip sings will. Hence, they have often been forced to purchase peace. End quote. He said whenever they were short of funds, they would find some way to negotiate with the hip sings and come up with a price to keep the peace. When the smoke cleared and everything was investigated, it was found that all these back-and-forth hits were personal in nature and none of them were sanctioned by any higher-ups. So as far as the On Leong and Hip Sing leadership were concerned, the 1925 truce still stood. That flare-up in 1927 was repeated in various guises over the years, in October 1928, August 1929. When it got bad enough, in jumped La Migra and other law enforcement types, and when they started wagging their finger, somehow that had a calming effect. During the 1920s, there were so many innocent Chinese-American immigrants living just enough for the city who got caught up in that whole battle of wills between the Tongs and the U.S. authorities. The old guard had had enough. These crime bosses knew the same thing the heads of the five families knew in The Godfather. All this violence was bad for business. The two sides came together and signed a new deal that said from now on, whatever happened, everything got settled by third-party arbitration and that the Chinese consul would serve in that role. And everyone shook hands on that, and this innovation in peace negotiations was a long time in coming. So that was uh, in August 1929. We all know what stock market that's uh, going to crash in a couple of months. Yeah, the Great Depression hit Chinatown with a vengeance like it did everywhere. People went into survival mode. 150 Chinese restaurants closed by 1930. That was a lot of cooks, waiters, busboys, and dishwashers out on the street. 
the unemployment rate amongst Chinese hovered around 25%. Charlie Boston died in 1930. Yeah, he was probably the last of the Mohicans. He had been a part of the game going all the way back to the 1890s. He had outlived Tom Lee by 12 years. Let me quote Scott Seligman again. Quote, even before Boston's passing, however, a generational shift in the leadership of the Tongs had occurred. Tom Lee and Ging Gum were gone. The Hip Sings, too, had seen a changing of the guard. Wong Get had returned to China in 1927, and Mock Duck was nowhere to be seen. End quote. Actually, Mock Duck would surface later on, and he ended up dying of TB on July 23, 1941, and joined his former Ong nemeses at Cypress Hill Cemetery. One interesting thing I read, one of the uh, iconic scenes during the Great Depression were the lines outside the public soup kitchens. Churches and other agencies fed the needy, and people would line up. Again, Scott Seligman, quote, Chinese did not patronize the soup kitchens organized by the white charities, even when these facilities were established in Chinatown. The Christian Science Monitor noted admiringly that, although an uptown emergency relief organization had opened a station on Doyer Street, only white and black people from the Bowery had appeared in line. Not a single Chinese. An Appel Street kitchen set up to service the Chinese community closed after less than a week for want of patrons. Local Chinese looked instead to their mutual aid organizations, which included not only the family circles and the regional associations, but also the Tongs for aid, which in some cases meant food and shelter. The Tongs began to feel the strain. This was no time for battle. The, quote, warring tongs, the Presbyterian Reverend I.S. Caldwell wrote in 1932, ceased their rivalry and devoted themselves to the common tasks of mercy, end quote. Now, don't think for a second that everyone loved one another. That wasn't the case. Things took a turn for the worse when, in 1930, a new tong entered the ring. This was the Tong'on Society. They created quite a mini-war with the Onliangs due to an opium deal that went south. Despite the bloodbath, no one officially called it a Tong War. Once Uncle Sam began clearing his throat, both sides went to their corners, and things were quiet after that. But the Depression had taken its toll on Chinatown. When the worst was over, it was a new era for that one-acre triangle between Mott Pell and the Bowery. Like dead skin that shed itself... The opium dens, gambling joints, and houses of ill repute went elsewhere. In Chinatown, the tourist destination was here to stay. The Tongs were called on again to dip into their coffers after Zhou Yiba, the Mukden incident, 918-1931. The Japanese kicked off their little takeover of Manchuria and began to peruse what else they could get out of China. The patriotism of the Tongs was tested time and again as their support was requested to aid the homeland. Actually, the Onleongs and the Hip Sings worked together quite often in raising money for China throughout the 1930s. But still, one day you'd wake up and read about some Hip Sing gunning down an Onleong somewhere. This happened in January 1933. The first half of that year saw violence erupt again. The feds tore into the national heads of the two tongs and threatened them with a grand jury indictment. This brought everyone together again on August 17, 1933 for the signing of another truce. This one 
pledge that whatever happened from now on, the Chinese Consul and the Chinese Consolidated Benevolence Association would arbitrate. And that, my friend, is considered the once and for all official end to the bloodiest of the Four Tong Wars. Now, I'm not going to say that no one ever got whacked again, but by this time, the era of the New Deal, the Tongs started to go legit. All the blood spilled was always related to the same old jealousies and personal quarrels that we have today and they have had since time immemorial. When bad blood surfaced somewhere, the Tongs had to jump right in and put out the fire. The important thing is that this time, the peace held. As for Tammany Hall, that legendary and corrupt organization, finally got taken down by Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the immortal Fiorella LaGuardia. That once impregnable political machine was back on their heels since the Depression and were ripe for taking down. New York Chinatown Vice, for the most part, moved over to the Jersey side. The old days were over. Times changed. So that was the Tong Wars. Those were the Tongs. Every immigrant group that passed through Ellis or Angel Island had their own versions. There was much a part of American history as anything else. So if you always heard of the Tongs but never knew for sure who they were, I hope this three-part series at least gave you some degree of nourishment. I just gave you the broth. If you want all the substance, may I strongly suggest the book by Scott Seligman. It's called Tong Wars, The Untold Story of Vice, Money, and Murder in New York's Chinatown. I give it my highest recommendation. Okay, that's going to be it for this time. New topic next episode. I promise we'll do a deep dive and go back to the real olden days. Until then, me little beauties, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off as usual, but not always, from fantastic L.A. Hey, man, you can't beat us when it comes to dryness. No rain, but we have plenty of fires. Take care, everyone, and please, if you've nothing better to do, consider joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.